Okay, good morning, everyone. I'm at least working out the kinks from our long Christmas break here. Welcome back to our study of Brian Wolfmuller's text, Has American Christianity Failed? And in what ways has it failed? <laughs> well, that's been the analysis of the text thus far. And we left off um, around page 96-97 in the chapter on justification, chapter 5. And we've been taking our time. Maybe that's an understatement. But um, I think, you know, rightfully so. What is my intent with this class? It's not to create a, a polished, streamlined synopsis of the book that's easily digestible by to an audi online audience, you know. Um, my point is to uh, minister to the needs of the people here in this place, and by extension, those um, watching online, if insofar as it's beneficial to them. And Sometimes that takes long form. Sometimes that takes conversation and slowing way down and defining terms. And that's really kind of my goal for this class. So um, we will pick up in, in just a moment on page 96, 97. Let's have an invocation and a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so as mentioned, we've slowed all the way down, and we've, we've defined justification. Again, this is the paradigm of how it is that we stand before God and he judges us. Is it on the basis of our works or on the basis of his grace in Christ Jesus? If it's on the basis of, of our works, then no man can stand before him. Or you might modify that and say, no man save for one, Christ Jesus. Okay, but then if it is, if we stand before him not on the basis of our works, but rather on the basis of his grace to us in Christ and Christ alone, then we are perfectly righteous in his sight, declared to be so imputed with the righteousness that is properly Christ, that righteousness given to us. No live stream going. Oh, okay. It's not working? Okay. Still not going. Um, let me text over to Wendy real quick. <clears throat> so, I, I'm thankful for your friend letting us know. There's probably some other folks. Um, let me see what I can do here. Fastest way. Are you texting her right now? Yes. Oh. Oh, okay, okay. No bandwidth. Somebody's playing too many video games. All right, well, let's, we'll just go ahead anyway. We'll just go ahead anyway. Um, hopefully we can get that going. And you can assure your friend that we'll just summarize the content and... Oh, the recording will be up later. Okay, well, sorry for the technical difficulties. Since now this is recorded, and everybody will be looking at this later. All right. Well, again, um, just summarizing Wolfmuller up to this point in the chapter, the justification properly is our standing before God. And we've talked about how justification is, and, and this is a key, it is one with sanctification, but must be distinguished from sanctification. Okay, and justification is our standing before God, that righteousness we have given to us for the sake of Christ. And then sanctification describes the renewal, the new creation, the new impulses in thought and word and deed that God through his Holy Spirit works in us. Now, why is it so important to keep those two things distinct? Because if you blur them together, then you fall back into that paradigm of how is it that I stand before God on the basis of my works or on the basis of God's grace in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? So when you have 
justification and sanctification or faith and works blended together, it just leads you, what does that look like existentially? Well, how could I, I don't know if I've done enough. Well, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, has Jesus died to forgive your sins? Yeah, but I still don't know if I've done enough. I don't know if I've been Christian enough. I don't know if I've been faithful enough. I don't know if any of it's been genuine. I don't, I, and you've got this great doubt as to the, as to your salvation. Nowhere is this kind of doubt commended in the scriptures, but everywhere the statements of scripture are to rid us of these doubts. So, you can tell where theology has gone astray, where you've got this kind of doubting going on, and you can tell where justification and sanctification have been mingled together. Another way of putting this is that law and gospel have been mingled together. It's another way of putting it together. When you, when you, um, when you put those things together, it's kind of like if you, you know, if you've got a whole glass of just clean, pure water. Beautiful, delicious, drinkable water, and you put just the tiniest little drop of arsenic in it. You gonna drink that water anymore? <laughs> so this is kind of like analogous to the gospel, okay, the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. And if you put just a drop of arsenic in it, just a drop of conditional, it ruins all the rest. Because all the promises of God are conditioned and predicated upon something in you. Do you believe? Is it? Did you make a decision? Have you done enough? You see, it takes away all the comfort. It ruins the fresh, refreshing glass of water. It ruins it and turns it into something that's poisonous. And the same thing happens too if we if we're contemplating the distinction between justification, our standing before God, and sanctification, God's work of renewal and new creation within us. If we blend these two. Um, you end up losing the former. You end up losing the righteousness that's based on Christ alone. Okay, hopefully that's making sense. Those uh, We spend a lot of time on, on that this kind of paradigm, this distinction, these categories. Um, justification leads to sanctification, but the two must always remain distinct. And Wolfmuller's point, again, in these uh, these early pages of this chapter has been that Justification is won for us on the cross, but it's not delivered to us on the cross. Justification, that is everything that Christ has done for us and won for us on the cross, is delivered to us through the Word and the sacraments, but here specifically the Word, and that Word is a promise. If you just look at that large type on page 95, you see the introduction of this so it is the word of the cross, the promise of the cross, the, the forgiveness of sins for you that is the application of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's the means, the mode by which it comes to us. And this is why Lutherans sometimes use the language of the, the means of grace or the means of the Holy Spirit. That is, how is it that what Christ did 2,000 years ago on a cross comes to us in this case here in Southern California, on the edge of the earth, on the edge of a continent, how is it that, it, that, 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 that those blessings and benefits won by Christ on the cross come to us and are delivered to us? Through the Word, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and through the sacraments, which are the Word with water, in the case of baptism, Word and bread and wine, in the case of the Lord's Supper. And these are means by which God communicates His grace to us. These are means by which the Holy Spirit works faith in us, expands faith in us, strengthens faith in us. So, means of grace, means of the Holy Spirit. All right, so an interesting critique that uh, that Wolf Mueller raises here at the bottom of page 96. American Christianity talks about faith but faith in what? Sometimes that's nebulous. Now, that might depend a lot upon your own personal anecdotal experience, but I have been privy to, um, to many an evangelical teaching or sermon that it's just generically faith in God. Sometimes saving faith is, the idea of saving faith is just that you believe God exists. 
So it's a fitting question to ask, you know, when, when we here in America are talking about faith, faith in what? All right, well, let's let Wolf Mueller have his word here. American Christianity talks about faith, but faith in what? If there is no promise, there is nothing to believe. American Christianity dangerously misses the promise through which Jesus delivers forgiveness and comfort to his people. Now, how can he say this? Because in how many evangelical sermons do you hear the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins for you? And then when you hear it, what roughly what percentage of the sermon is that content? If you listen to um, the evangelical radio station here in Southern California, you listen to hour-long sermons that never once proclaim the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to you. Or you'll listen to hour-long sermons that do at the very beginning or at the very end. Approximately 20 seconds worth of the hour-long. What does Jesus say to do in in, in Luke's Gospel, for example? He commissions his disciple and his people to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. Here you can see the problem with much of preaching in the American church is when it's, you know, 10 steps to a better you, 50 steps to a better marriage, 75 steps to living your best life now. Okay, and you might think, well, these things are all good. They're all wholesome. There's Bible verses being cited. The real subtle attack of the devil here is, is repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name being preached? And unfortunately, the answer very frequently is no. Or yes, but in such a way it's eclipsed by all the other quote-unquote biblical stuff. So this is a a real strength of the Lutheran confession to be able to call us back to our biblical roots in terms of preaching and in terms of the delivery system of what Christ has won for us on the cross, delivered to us in this preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Or as we Lutherans might put it, this preaching of law, that's repentance, it's the way God gets us to repent, and gospel, that is, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. All right, so then Wolf Mueller is going to have us... um, jump over to this idea of repentance, and there's going to be some room for some discussion here, to be sure. I think most important is to keep in mind that this chapter is about justification. So what Wolf Mueller is saying here is chiefly within this paradigm of justification. We're going to see that repentance he's going to describe in some passive terms, and that's just fine. It's it's entirely passive. If we're talking about repentance understood in the frame of justification. All right, so he's got the subheading, Repentance is not what you think, it is better. Repent is the basic preaching of the church. John the Baptist came preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Sound familiar? Well, I was quoting Jesus at the end of Luke. Here, Wolfmuller is quoting John the Baptist at the beginning of Mark. Same central message from start to finish repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. Wolfmuller continues, Jesus followed in his, John the Baptist's, footsteps. Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And remember that language of kingdom of God, when you see that, think at least think in part, reign of God. The reign of God is at hand. What is What is his reign over and against? The reign of Satan. So the reign of Satan is the reign of sin and death. So this is how you can understand that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the gospel is already completely understood. It's just not to us. We think, well, what is this kingdom of God? Are there stones and towers and little flags at the top? I mean, what is this? Is there a princess and a dragon? What is this kingdom? No, no, no. Have in mind reign. The reign of God is at hand, and then have secondarily, why is that revolutionary? Doesn't God always reign? No, Satan is the one who is presently reigning over this world. When Adam and Eve listened to him, he became the God of this world, the small g God of this world, as the scriptures call him. 
So his reign is coming to an end. His reign of sin and death is coming to an end. In the kingdom or reign of God, Jesus is coming to bring an end to sin and an end to death. That's where, again, if we're understanding the biblical language, we're going to see that in something even so simple as this word from Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, that Jesus is preaching the gospel full force. The defeat of Satan, the removal of sin, and then with it, the removal of death. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So what? Repent and believe in the gospel. And so look at how this is parallel. We hear it in John, his preaching, recorded in Mark 1.4. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is his message. At the end of Luke, Jesus, repentance and forgiveness of sins. So how does that correspond in us? Repentance and faith. Repent and believe. So the preaching of repentance comes, we are to repent. The preaching of forgiveness comes, we are to believe. And that's the righteousness then credited to us by faith apart from works. All right, so it's all right here. It's all right here. It's all quite foundational. All right, so then Wolfmuller writes, and here the uh, in the different sized fonts that the editors chose for him, repentance is the requirement and the result of God's word coming to mankind. Now, that's a really interesting loaded statement, isn't it? It's the requirement and the result. Let's see what he, see what he means. But what is repentance? Wolfmuller asks. In American Christianity, repentance is the requirement that I change. Defined as, quote unquote, doing a U-turn with your life. To repent means I stop doing sinful things and start doing godly things. Repentance is my free will accomplishing some degree of good works. Repentance is often understood as a one-time event, or at least as a monumental event in our spiritual lives. <clears throat> if I am caught up in some sort of sin and come to myself, I repent, that is, I resolve to stop sinning and do better. As with so many other things in American Christianity, this understanding of repentance brings us back to the shaky foundation of our own resolve. Repentance is my work, and the sincerity of my repentance is brought into question by my failure to keep God's law. All right. So when the onus of repentance is laid upon us as individuals, that's sort of ingredient number one. And ingredient number two is it's understood in absolute terms. Okay? Um, what does it mean to repent? Well, to turn fully away from sin and fully toward God. Those are absolute terms, right? One or the other. Okay, what's the problem with this? Who could ever say that he repented? If you do the thought experiment of this, it would mean that to be in a state of full repentance is to no longer be in a state of sin whatsoever. This is where, by the way, the holiness bodies, quote-unquote, in America, and they're a minority and a shrinking minority even today, so maybe less important for us to emphasize, but this is where they conclude, they take this theology to its logical conclusion, they say, if you are a Christian and you are repentant, you've ceased from sin. You no longer need forgiveness. Ouch. You can see how noxious this theology is then, um, well, how noxious to them it is that we have a confession absolution. There's a story that floats around our congregation here at Faith um, way precedes me, um, but some of you in this room may remember. But we had a very vociferous man come to our congregation from a holiness body and tradition, and he was vehemently opposed to um, all of our theology, of course, but most, most aggravating to him was how we begin our service. Because immediately after the invocation, 
is I a poor, miserable sinner. And his whole point was if you've repented, then you're no longer a poor, miserable sinner. You've turned away from sin, you no longer need sin. And then when the pastor turns and says, in the stead, that means in the place of, and by the command, by the command, in the place of, and by the command of Jesus, I forgive you your sins, John 20 theology, that's the height of blasphemy because I don't need forgiveness. I've already left forgiveness in the past with my sins. I'm over it. I'm good. I'm holy. Ha! Well, how long did he last here? Um, the elders finally had to say, stop antagonizing us. This isn't our theology. Um, so you can see where in, in odd and rare instances, this theology follows to its logical conclusion. Now, in broad stream, American evangelicalism, American Christianity, not so much followed to its logical conclusion. But one can still kind of get this gnawing feeling of, I, if, if it, if repentance means to completely turn away from all my sins and who else is that on but me? And I haven't really done that or I've done it, but then backslid. And am I really a Christian? Am I really pulling it off? All these other people seem to be pulling it off. All these other people seem to be making it, but not me. It's a recipe for despair. What might it be on the other hand? Well, do you remember the two poles, either despair or pride or self-righteousness? And so then you kind of get this haughty attitude. And I think you can see this. And again, this isn't specific to any one denomination. But you can see this in American Christianity, this kind of haughtiness, this kind of pride of, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, Jesus is there to clean up whatever I didn't get right. <clears throat> Thanks be to God, but let's Let's be real. There's less and less of that as the days go on. <laughs> you know, this idea that, that my sin is there and it's a big deal, but Christ is taking care of it, so it's not a big deal. And what we've done here now is we've shrank the law down. We've shrank repentance down to something that's easily doable, easily achievable. And, and then what follows that? If I don't feel my sins anymore because the law has so been diminished and truncated and repentance is something easy and a piece of cake and I've already, yeah, I repented way back in 1979. I don't need to repent. You know, then what also goes away? The gospel. You don't need the forgiveness of sins if you don't have any. You don't need the forgiveness of sins if it's not a big deal that you sin. You don't need the forgiveness of sins if you're pulling it off. And that's where so much of Christianity here in America, um, really emphasizing the transformed life and the successful you and the pastor as life coach. And Jesus is in the background. He's in the rear view mirror. He was there when you used to really need him because you used to be a real sinner. And now that you're through all that, it's time to work on you. And thus the Christian becomes the center of Christianity rather than Christ the center of Christianity and the Christian life becomes the focus as opposed to the forgiveness of sins being the focus all right so this is a pretty good diagnostic then for everything that's gone wrong here in in American Christianity all right so how then do we think of repentance specifically when we're talking about this paradigm of, of justification our standing before God our salvation and what Wolf Mueller is going to do is run us through um, the three parables of, of Luke's gospel, um, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy. Um, if these are not familiar to you, I commend the fullness of uh, Wolf Mueller's text. And, and I would even commend you to go look them up in the Bible and see what they have to say. Read them for yourself. Um, for the sake of this class, we're simply going to go pretty quickly through these. And just try to glean the major point that Wolfmuller's after. So first introduced toward the bottom of page 97 is the parable of the lost sheep. All right. <clears throat> we know the story. The sheep is lost. The shepherd goes out to find him. This is no normal shepherd, Wolfmuller says, who's going to risk the lives of the 99 sheep in the open country to leave and look for the one lost sheep. Um, but this is uh, indicative of the nature of God's grace and mercy toward us. 
Now over on page 98, again, just kind of tracking with the text, Luke 15, 5 through 6, the shepherd finds the sheep, lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, brings it back home. Rejoice with me, he says, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Okay. Now, if we, if we skip down through this, and I don't mean to imply that it's not valuable, it's great. But we're just after gleaning the main points. So if we, if we skip down then to, um, this, dear friends, is repentance. Okay. What specifically is repentance? Well, the picture here is of Jesus coming and grabbing the sheep, putting the sheep on his shoulders and bringing the sheep home. Well, what's the sheep doing? Whatever the sheep is doing is happening to the sheep. It's quite passive. I mean, the sheep would be getting lost. <laughs> that would be sin. The sheep would be getting found. That would be the shepherd's action. The sheep would be getting picked up. That's the shepherd's action. Put on the shoulders. That's the shepherd's action. Carried home. That's the shepherd's action. And so forth. And so what this, again, if, if the center of the gospel is, is repentance and forgiveness of sins, and this is how Jesus teaches it, look at how repentance is being taught. It's something that is done to us. Okay? It's passive. And this is a very important point, a very important theological point for us to drink in. Okay. Now, you know, already, already, um, some of you who have been Lutheran for a long time say, well, isn't there a point at which repentance can become active in us? The answer to that question is, well, absolutely. But that would be part and parcel of what we call sanctification, where God puts within us a new heart, a new will, new desires and emotions. And one of those desires and emotions is to examine ourselves. As St. Paul teaches, for example, before we go to the Lord's Supper, we examine ourselves we might even examine ourselves according to the Ten Commandments, as the small catechism instructs. And through this process, we come to a kind of active repentance where we see, hey, I'm examining myself, I see where I fall short, I'm making this confession, I'm going to make changes in my life, I'm going to try to cut these things out, etc., etc. Okay, does any of that have anything to do with your standing before God for eternal life? No. That's the point. Now, is that other stuff good? Yes. Great. We should be exhorted to do that, and that should be commended. But does that have anything to do? Does our success in that paradigm or our failure in that paradigm have anything to do with our standing before God at his judgment seat? And the answer is no, because we're justified by grace through faith, apart from works solely on the account of Jesus. So you see that? So we retain our full comfort, even though we as Lutherans lean wholeheartedly into repentance in all its forms, its active forms, and the Christian life and good works. We lean full weight into that. We're not going to be doing so in such a way that we end up trusting in that as part of our salvation or standing before God. Please. Okay, so um, the, the scripture that comes to my mind often talking about what you're telling us. Mm -hmm. So 1 John 1, 8 and 9, I use this a lot. Mm -hmm. um, John is speaking to the brethren, right? And, and, he, and then he says, if, we say we're, if you say you're without sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth's not in you. Mm -hmm. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just <laughs> to forgive us our sins. So he's telling the believers, mm -hmm. that's a favorite verse of mine. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite verses. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's nothing in scriptures, you know, and, and this is, this is kind of, again, from a, this is a uniquely Lutheran kind of conversation we're having because the problem with broader Christianity in America is they don't understand that God is the one who brings us to repentance. God is the one who brings us to faith. It's all me, my choices, my actions, my decisions. And the problem is if that's part of your standing before God for salvation, then it is dependent upon you. The converse of this is you could say like, well, I should go into heaven because I've repented and Jones hasn't repented. So sorry, Jones, you should go. Okay, so now who goes to heaven and who goes to hell and on what basis? Well, me on the basis of my works, namely my repentance and Jones to hell on the basis of his lack of works, his lack of repentance. You see, so what, what do we do as soon as we add that one little bit of arsenic to the water? As soon as we 
that put that one little, ah, just this little part is up to you. We've, we've ruined the whole thing. Now you do have reason to boast. Now salvation isn't by grace through faith alone on account of Christ alone. There's one little ingredient that you have to add. Whether that's your repentance or your faith or your decision or whatever else, that one little ingredient is, makes you better than someone who doesn't have that ingredient. So you do have cause to boast. The scriptures everywhere say you have no cause to boast. Um, or you can always, always, if Satan gets you to believe that, then he can always attack that one little thing you're supposed to do. Was your repentance repentant enough? Was your faith true enough? Did you really give your life to Jesus or should you give it to him again for the 30th time? <laughs> right? So he's always, always, if he can get us to accept this theology that it's at least in part dependent upon me, then he can attack that either through self-righteousness or through despair. Hey, you've got it. Nobody else got it. You're good. Self-righteousness. Or, and let's see how genuine that is. Let's see how unhypocritical that repentance is. Despair, you see. Either way, he's going to get you by accepting the premise to lose your faith in one way or another. So again, what is the biblical teaching and what is the teaching that Wolfmuller's after here? Specifically, when we're talking about justification or standing before God, <clears throat> we are passive all the way through. We are that sheep who, what does the sheep actively do? Gets lost. <laughs> All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah says. Each one has gone his own way. That's, that's our part. Okay? What other activity do we have? Nothing. Nothing. We get lost. We're sinful. It's Christ's activity, the good shepherd who comes, seeks us out, finds us, grabs hold of us, lifts us up, puts us on his shoulders, carries us home. To him be all glory. The lost sheep gets no glory. Oh yeah, but the lost sheep, he, uh, he didn't resist. Okay. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? Maybe he did resist. Maybe the shepherd had to put him on his shoulders because he wouldn't follow the shepherd home. Uh, so the whole picture here is one of Christ doing the doing. And that's really Wolfmuller's point. It's a foundational point. It's a great point. And it is, it is really uh, one of the major themes of the lost sheep, as it will be for the next parable, the lost coin. Let's pause there, see if you have any thoughts on the lost sheep or anything else we've been talking about um, before we just move on. There's a hand up front here. Um, is the lost child, is that the prodigal son? That yeah. we're going to, yeah. Yeah, we'll touch on the product. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I but, just hadn't read ahead. Yeah. By, um, by slaying the, the lost sheep, the lost oh, coin, and the lost boy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, but, but that's the most special one to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure he'll make the point. But, uh, yeah. I mean, the father didn't say, take a shower before I put this robe on you. <laughs> <laughs> you right. Know. Right. Yeah, yeah. The father doesn't lay conditions upon <laughs> no, you, right? No. Yeah. So yeah. good. I'm glad we're getting to that. Yeah, we'll, okay. We'll touch on that. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Okay. So bottom of 98, the lost coin. And again, you remember this story. The woman has her, has her coins. She loses one. What does that coin do to get himself found? You know, this is kind of what's funny about, um, you know, I, and, and again, I think that this is, I don't mean to, I don't mean to peck on this unduly. I'm not trying to be mean spirited. Okay. That's what I'm really getting at. But if you remember, like there's, you can see some bumper stickers still around, like, I found Jesus. You know, and you kind of go, was he lost? <laughs> uh, and, and sometimes in our language, we even talk that way. Oh, this person hasn't found Jesus yet, or I hope he finds Jesus. Again, is Jesus playing hide and seek? This is, this is a weird way of thinking. Where does this language come from? It's almost as if Jesus were the lost sheep, or Jesus were the lost coin. It comes from this idea that I have to do something, right? That Jesus is over there passive, and I have to do something. Namely, find him, discover him, repent, believe in him, turn toward him. The onus is on me. What's, of course, so revolutionary about these parables taught by Jesus himself, and much earlier than this theology of I have to go find Jesus, I have to go, is Jesus is the one doing the finding. Jesus is the one doing the discovery. So this is all the more clear in this coin that falls away and is just laying there, you know, dead in the dark, dusty floor, waiting to be found. 
And so this woman sweeping is an image and icon of Jesus. If you, if you want to kind of press that forward and an image and icon of the church of Jesus Christ, if you kind of like that female imagery better. Um, but again, I don't think that we necessarily need to do that. Jesus compares himself to a hen, a female chicken wanting to gather her chicks together. I don't think he has any problem comparing himself to a woman diligently sweeping the floor for her lost coin. So we won't get hung up on that point. But that is that is then just a general summary of, of this uh, parable, and you can guess where it's going. Okay, the woman loses a coin. She's the one who lights a lamp, which, by the way, uh, you know, it may be a small cost, but there's a cost involved. She sweeps the house. There's some labor involved. And she seeks diligently until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls all her friends together saying, Rejoice with me, I've found the coin that I had lost. Okay, And again, Wolfmuller's point, top of 99, the lost coin did nothing to be found by the widow. It sat on the floor under the dust. The widow did it all. The same relentless seeking, the same joyful finding, the same over-the-top rejoicing, and the same point. Just so I tell you, he's quoting Jesus, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repents. And so now we can see that what is this one sinner who repents in the story? It's the coin lying there doing nothing. So now back to, back to Wolf Mueller's kind of intriguing statement back on 97. Repentance is the requirement. You have to repent. That's the requirement. But it's also the result of God's word coming to mankind. So repentance is a requirement. You have to repent. But it's also the re very result of the thing that God does for us. The shepherd grasps hold of the sheep and carries it home. The woman sweeps for the coin, finds it, picks it up, and rejoices. And Jesus is speaking specifically of repentance, as verse 10 indicates. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So repentance, understood in this very broad term, as in this very broad way, and understood thoroughly within the frame of justification or standing before God, repentance is passive. Passive. All right, now here is one more key distinction. It's just very important for us to grasp. Repentance can be passive, that is something God works in us, and then repentance can also be active. That is to say, because of what God has done in us, we can actively repent. We can actively confess our sins, examine ourselves, change things. Okay? So do you see how there's passive repentance and active repentance? Now what we want to do is we want to put those two things together with that paradigm we've had of justification and sanctification. Justification, our standing before God, passive repentance only. He finds us. We don't do anything. When we say sanctification, now we can talk about repentance as an active thing. As St. Paul does. Crucify the works of darkness in your flesh. Active language. You go do it. Go put these things to death. Active. So this distinction between active and passive repentance is foundational to keeping these things clear. And this paradigm, by the way, gives us another avenue. And that is, we'll be able to describe faith in the same terms. Is faith an active thing or a passive thing? Well, it depends how you're speaking. Faith in the language and frame of justification is completely passive. God is doing the doing. You're not doing anything. Even faith itself is a gift, the scriptures say. Completely passive. But now, can faith be active if we shift over to the frame of sanctification? Of course faith can be active. That's why Jesus talks about having little faith or great faith. He can make a distinction between faiths. He can, um, um, and, and we can be admonished to be strong in the faith and to grow in the faith. All active language, you see.
Luther, to this point, says faith is a living and active thing that's already doing good works before it's even told to do good works. Okay, He's talking about faith in the sphere of sanctification, understood as the new creation and renewal, the new impulses that God puts within us, within our hearts. Make sense? So we can talk about faith passive and faith active. Are these two different parts? No. Or, I mean, really, are these two different faiths? No. They're one faith. They're two different aspects of the one faith. There's a passive side and an active side. Okay? So, fides passiva, fides activa is the Latin there. And this distinction becomes of the utmost importance in order to clarify these things so we can keep a clean conscience before God without falling into despair or self-righteousness and then without giving up on good works or the Christian life either. We're not going to do that either. All right. Any thoughts or any questions on that? I saw some nods of agreement, some uh, looks of consternation, like we're processing this. Yeah, please. Um, One second, we'll get you a microphone. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Good. Okay. Apologize for that. Yeah. Okay, so I know that these things can be kind of difficult, especially if you're just being introduced to them for the first time, but these are sort of the the foundational distinctions that you can see, and it's what it really is when we talk about this. It's just a way of um, ordering or organizing what what we see in the scriptures. So what we're looking at with Wolf Mueller right here is you couldn't have a clearer statement on the passivity of repentance. The coin is entirely passive, and Jesus says this is repentance. What is repentance? To simply be found by God. <laughs> Okay, passive. But then there are other parts of Scripture where we see active in all. We see a command to repent. We see concrete things like not to live any longer as children of the darkness, to reject the works of the flesh. Active language. What do we do if we see repentance described passively and then actively? What if we, what do we do if we find faith described passively and then actively? We note that. And we seek to understand how those two teachings are in harmony with one another. And that really is where we come up with, then, this distinction between law and gospel, this distinction between justification and sanctification, the distinction between faith and good works. All right, so really helpful ways to think, really helpful ways to talk. And this is, again, um, what the scriptures have to offer us as as, um, Christians here in America. And it's so much better than the alternative to which we've kind of blindly gone. All right, so last but not least, after the lost sheep, the lost coin, then the lost boy. Now, Wolf Mueller introduces this in the second full paragraph on page 99. And this one maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll walk through a little bit. We considered the parable of the running, forgiving, sweeping up in arms of mercy, and killing the fatted calf father already in chapter 2. You might recall that. But consider it again in the context of our discussion of repentance. We might say, here is a more comfortable picture of repentance. This boy realizes what he's done wrong, and he comes back to the father. He does something. Repentance is his work. But this parable is really a rebuke of this understanding of repentance. The prodigal son has his repentance speech all worked out. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is the perfect example of the American Christian understanding of repentance. It is our effort and our resolve. The merciful Father won't even let him finish. Here is the ring, the robe, the feast, the joy of heaven. None of it is deserved, all of it a gift. This is the point. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is something that the Lord gives to us. Okay, and then he's going to go on, and and we'll continue on too, to say the rest of the scriptures confirm this. Okay? So, 
Um, you know, I've got maybe a couple exegetical quibbles here simply because I don't really view the, personally, I don't really view the, the boy's speech when he returns, um, to be a self-righteous speech or, um, pounding his chest saying, look how repentant I am. I just want to be one of your hired servants. I look at this rather as just simply part of his pathos, part of his recognition that he's sinned in such a way. But what has brought him to that, to that recognition? Well, he finds where his sins have led him. There's a passivity in that. Did he choose to go, um, you know, feed, feed the pigs and be knee deep in their waste and longing to eat the pods? I mean, he, he chose that only in the most minor sense out of necessity of what he had to do to try to survive, but he finally realizes that all of his sins have led to these consequences. Who brought the consequences about? God. So, again, I think that that's where I find the passivity of his repentance in this parable, is insofar as the boy was concerned, he would have continued on partying, indefinitely but it was god who finally imposed upon him consequences such that he woke up and the consequences were such that he rightly um, says i i don't deserve to be a son i think that's actually a pious confession personally i think that that's a confession we all make all the time as baptized christians i know that you've called me god's own child i gladly say it but i have to confess that i have not acted that way at all i've acted more like the prodigal and it, and my where is my heart? Like I would if I could only be a a keeper of the door in the tent of God, that would be better than sitting on the throne of sin and iniquity. Um, that's it's a very pious, repentant attitude. Now that takes nothing away though from Wolf Mueller's point that passive is that that repentance is passive, and that the Father's grace is completely unilateral and unexpected because the son i mean what would you know what would you expect an earthly father to say well you're right you wished me dead you squandered all the inheritance everything that i've saved up and worked for my whole life and now you're back smelling like pig slop hoping that you'll be welcomed back in yeah you're still my son but you're right you can earn it back you can be a servant and maybe if he was a super gracious father he'd be like let's test this newfound repentance Let's let him serve for seven years. <laughs> um, so this father is astonishing in his grace and mercy. Because even that we would kind of say, well, that's gracious. It's gracious for him to take him back at all. But we see how um, superseding and abundant God's grace is that reflected in this father. That no, he doesn't require even that. He doesn't require any kind of penance at all, any period of testing or trial or active repentance to prove, no, he just simply goes forward with his lavish grace. Here's the ring, here's the robe. I'm not even going to listen to this business about you earning your way back or being a servant or anything else. Like, no. Um, and if that were really a problem, you know, again, just to be on the exegetical for a moment, if that were really a problem, you'd expect this father to be like, and now you've come back in self-righteousness? Now you want to earn your way back in? No, I mean that. So anyway, I don't, I don't care for the uh, that exegetical point that's been drawn out. But the point, the theological point that Wolf Mueller is making throughout this text, fully in agreement with. So repentance is a gift. Repentance is something that the Lord gives to us. All right, and then second to the last full paragraph there on page 99, the rest of the scriptures confirm this. Peter is called before the Jewish council to account for the miracles he performed in Jerusalem. You remember this from the book of Acts. He ended his testimony with this description of Jesus. God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So there you can see that the, the gift of repentance is something that Jesus gives to us. It's passive on our part. Acts 5.31. Wolf Miller continues, Far from our own work, it is the work of Jesus to give repentance. This comes up again in Acts as the disciples in Jerusalem consider the conversion of the Samaritans. 
Now, quoting from Acts 11:18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, here's the key language, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So who's doing the doing? God is. It's God who's granting repentance. In this instance, it's God who, or Christ, who gives repentance to Israel in the previous instance. Um, repentance is a gift just like faith is a gift. There's all kinds of wonderful and paradoxical things we can think about in this regard too. That where our hearts are being accused and how uncomfortable that is. How uncomfortable that is when the law is doing its work and we feel the terrors, we feel the weight of our sin, we feel our true filthiness and unworthiness. We recognize not just that I'm a sinner in the generic, but that these are my specific sins and my specific crimes, not against human laws per se, necessarily, but against God himself. Uh, we need to recognize that this is a gift. And as bad as that hurts, as uncomfortable as that is, a good, faithful prayer would be, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Because there's this is a miracle. It's a miracle um, that we would feel guilt, that we would feel shame, that we would be led by God to repent and to cry out to Him, have mercy. You know, in the backdrop of, of this entire conversation, I think I brought up maybe last class period, I'll, I'll do so recurrently, in the backdrop of, of this conversation is that parable that Jesus tells of the, of the righteous man, the Pharisee, who goes to the temple to pray, and next to him is the sinful man um, who's there to pray. And the righteous man prays, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy over here. Now, very interesting to diagnose that, because what is he saying? I thank you, God, you've made me like this. There's actually a pretty sophisticated wrinkle there, isn't it? He's almost a grace theologian. I thank you, God, that you've made me like this, which is to say, not like that loser over there. <laughs> okay, and then the other man cannot even look up has no consciousness whatsoever of the man next to him, but simply says to God, have mercy on me. And the, the language there is very technical in the Greek. It's make atonement for me. And Jesus tells us which man returned home justified. Is it the man who says, I thank you that I have faith in this other. Yeah, I thank you that you've given me faith and this other man doesn't have. I thank you that you've given me repentance in this other man. I thank you that you've given me good works in this. I thank you that you've made me clean up my life in this. That man returns home not justified, but the man who simply can't even look up his head but says to God, you know, much like this prodigal son, make atonement for me, have mercy on me, receive me. Um, that man does return home justified. So we can see the work of God, the passivity of repentance, the fruit of repentance in his confession. Um, beautiful, beautiful statements from Scripture. All right, well, as we look down at the bottom of 99 and kind of begin to wrap up our time, there's uh, a psalm, Psalm 80, verse 3, quoted Excuse with... Me, uh, oh, please do, please do. Thanks. I'm trying to yeah, reconcile thanks. this in my mind. Uh, the scripture tells us that we're enemies of God. Yep. And we have Romans 1, that we choose to not follow God. So I'm thinking, are we like pathetic criminals? And we finally come to the end of our rope and we're caught red-handed with a gun in our hand or our, our hands on the dial of the safe. Yeah. And it's just a pathetic situation, but we've actively been against God. Yeah, this is really, really important to parse out because otherwise our theology can get very, very distorted without us even realizing this. Okay. We are enemies of God according to our nature. That which is flesh is opposed to the capital S spirit and that which is of the spirit is opposed to the uh, flesh. So when we are born of the flesh, of fleshly parents, of fleshly birth, we are born and by nature enemies of God. Now, when God, and Paul's point is that 
God's grace is, is so thoroughly exhibited in the fact that while we were all, while all of humanity was his enemies, he sent his own son to die for us, to redeem us, to atone for our sins by his blood, and then to make peace with us on the basis of that blood, on the basis of what he's already accomplished to come and say, everything that you've done against me has been atoned for. It's forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean. Let us be reconciled. Now, that's why we're the ambassadors of reconciliation between God and man. This is the astounding grace of God. Okay, what happens then when a man is, is converted, an enemy of God is converted, he becomes a friend of God. And that's why Abraham is called a friend of God. It's why Jesus says, um, why he calls his disciples friends, you see. So then what about us? What about us as Christians? Well, we can recognize that the flesh in us is still hostile to God. But the new man in us is friendly toward God. Thus we can understand Paul in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, that part of me that's friendly to God and tries and aspires, I do not always do. And that's the on account of the flesh, the enemy of God that is within me. So we're turned against ourselves. And this really is the origin of confession and active repentance then, is we recognize as friends of God, as children of God, as converted um, sons of God, we recognize that within us are things that are hostile to us and hostile to God. And so we join on his side by confessing against those things and by crucifying them and resisting them. This is all, this is all within the paradigm of sanctification, right? So very important that we just recognize these biblical dynamics. And that way we'll, we'll stay clear from these sort of absolutist categories and this kind of weird theology that developed in the 20th century in Lutheran circles, you know, where even, you know, pastors will even say to, to Christians, Oh, you're thoroughly and 100% an enemy of God, and there's nothing within you that's not antagonistic and an enemy of God. It's like, that kind of does something to the new man that is within you, the new creation that God has made you, the baptismal reality that you're his son, the fact that you're his temple filled with his spirit, etc. Right? Are you just going to wipe out all that theology? No, you can't do that. So... Again, keeping these biblical teachings just real clear, real straight. They don't make for bombastic, sexy statements, you know, that get spread all over the internet. But what they do make for is really sound, wholesome theology. So going along with that, is it wrong to think that as you read the Word, study the Word, learn more about the word you're there's a continuum that's happening there's changes that are happening in you and if that were true before you were converted maybe it's not true for you now and then would that also follow with the consideration on in the parable you told of the pious man and the what was his error he started thinking his works Got him, you know, and then yeah. it goes along with what she just said, right? Yeah. That, you know, we were an enemy of God, but if you've had justification and some sanctification, <clears throat> now you're not an enemy of God, but you didn't do it, and you can't say, look, I'm better now, and I'm not the enemy anymore. I mean, yeah. it's that dangerous mind game, right? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I yeah. Okay, I can, well, I can do something that Paul does frequently to, like, make this all make sense. Um, just, okay, um, there's this, uh, explain it to me like I'm five, right? Here's the explain it to me like I'm five. Do you have anything to boast before God? Could you boast in anything? If God says, why should I let you in heaven? This is all hypothetical, of course. But if God says, why should I let you in heaven? Would you say, because of my faith, because of my good works, because of my sufferings for what's right? No. You've got no cause to boast. Everything that you have is given to you by grace. You've got zero cause to boast. That's, that's it. That's it. Do you have reason to boast before God or not? If someone says they do, they're stuck in self-righteousness. If someone says they don't, there's at least the root of repentance. 
and the acknowledge. So it gets that, it's just that simple. And this really, you know, when we, when we battle through the Reformation and we battle through the complexities of reading Paul and Pauline theology, even, even St. Peter says, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> can, can you imagine? This is why, by the way, I don't like take any offense when people say, hey, what you preached didn't make any sense. <laughs> okay, well, maybe I'm having a St. Paul moment here. Um, but Paul does give us low-hanging fruit, too, where we can take these complex ideas and bring them down very simply. So that, that man who, um, what was he doing standing before God? Even though he, in, with, with one side of his mouth, gave credit to God, I thank you, God, that I'm not, out of the other side of his mouth, he says, like that guy, which is a boast, you see. There's a boast in his mouth. So the whole goal of Christian theology boiled down to explain it like I'm five is you don't have anything to boast except in Christ Jesus. He's your boast, period, the end. That's what makes you a Christian. If you're going to boast anything else, you're going to be very disappointed. And you're going to find out that it wasn't worth boasting in. So hopefully that that helps. Um, I see I see one more hand. I'm sorry, I, we're over time, so let me just stop it and then we'll we'll continue the conversation if that's all right. All right. The Lord be with you.